You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. Well, good morning, church. So today we got a little curveball for you. Uh, if you would, at some point today, just say a little prayer for my wife. We've been uh, dealing with two sick ones this weekend, and she gets the pleasure of staying home with them this morning. And so you don't have anything to, uh, pretty to look at this morning. It's just me. Uh, but we're going to continue in our relationship series called Mr. and Mrs. Wrong, looking at relationship killers. But uh, since I don't have my partner in crime with me this morning, we're going to do a little curveball. Are you all up for that? Okay, cool. So here's how this is going to work. Uh, and in just a second, and I need a little more enthusiasm than what I just got from that answer, by the way. Uh, in just a second, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play a song clip. And the first person to correctly name the song clip, uh, meaning the name of the song and the person, gets a really old, crusty $1 bill. So, are you all ready? Again, a little more enthusiasm. So, are you all ready? Here we go. Let's hit it. By who? Here we go. Money by Pink Floyd. Come on, Joan Bailey. The price is right. Here you go. There it is. I mean, that was quick. That's right. So, that one was easy. This next one, uh, if you're a a child of the 90s, uh, meaning you kind of grew up in the 90s, uh, this one may ring some bells. I have a feeling that I'm going to stick some of you. So, here we go. P. Diddy, close. Mo' Money, Mo' Problems. Notorious B.I.G. But come on, Jay Gillis, here we go. I'm so thankful our elders listen to, listen to Biggie. Here it is. <laughs> I mean, the pastor knew the song, so, you know, it is what it is. So, anyway, uh, so if you haven't picked up on what we're talking about this morning with relationship killers, we're going to talk about the big M. Money. Uh, and, and the reason we're going to talk about this is because money is a huge issue. I don't care what kind of relationship you have, money can be a massive issue, whether it's in friendships, right? Hunter, don't you still owe me five bucks from Thursday? We went to Crystal's and this dude said, yeah, I'll pay you, Chris. Where's my money? So uh, that's just how it happens. Uh, or how about this strange relationship with coworkers or employees? Let me, let me brag on Morgan Gleaton really quickly. Uh, there are several students in, in our ministry that have blessed me and my family. Morgan is one of them who, her sweet soul, there was a point in time when she watched my kids, and I came home, and I, you know, I did the whole, oh, I forgot my wallet at home, but oh, dang, I'm at home. Uh, seriously, though, I didn't have any cash, and we just happened at that moment to not have any checks. I was like, hey, Morgan, I'll get you back. She goes, okay, cool. Four months goes by. And I wake up one day and I go, I think I owe Morgan Gleaton money. <laughs> and I walk up to her and say, hey, do I owe you money for like babysitting? She goes, well, yeah. And I'm like, why didn't you say something? And uh, thank you, Morgan, for being so kind and gracious, for not rubbing my, my face in the dirt every time you saw me. Maybe you did, but uh, you didn't do it to me, so I appreciate that. Uh, so money can be a stressor in all sorts of relationships. So here's another one. When I, uh, Amy and I were probably three years into our marriage, and... Uh, at the time, I just started playing golf. I was given a set of clubs, 
And of course, if you've ever been given a set of clubs, you find out really quickly the set of clubs that you were given are trash. That's why they gave them to you. And so uh, I went and played a couple of rounds and just realized that these are not the clubs for me. And so I happened to be in Kennesaw at, at the time, and there's a really nice golf store up there. And I walked in, and they got me. They hooked me. The guy was like, hey, you look like you want a new set of clubs today. I was like, you know, I really don't have the money for it, but I do. So he goes and puts me on a swing machine, and I'm swinging away. And he goes, I got this club. I got a perfect club for you. It's, it's cheap, 300 bucks. It's yours. Do it. And I'm like, sold. Sign me up because I'm an idiot. So without calling my wife, without doing anything, I buy a $300 driver, just a driver, not a set of clubs. In case you know anything about golf, that's really not that horrible of a price. But at the same time, you can get better. And I go home and my wife wears me out. And because of that one moment in life, we now have a $20 rule. For us, you can't spend more than 20 bucks without texting the other one to say, hey, I'm going to spend $300 on a driver. And uh, the, 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 the clear line in there is if they don't text you back within the amount of time that you have to you know, buy it, you can buy it. That's not her rule. That's just for me. So uh, <laughs> since she's not here, that's how the rule works. But anyway, we're, we're talking about relationship killers. And money is one. Money is a huge thing in all of our lives, whether it's with friends, coworkers, whatever. And so the, the bottom line that we need to get today that we're going to talk about this morning is that we need to trust in God and follow Him with our finances. Now, grads, you may be going, wow, this is a great sermon on Graduation Sunday, and I would say it is a great sermon on Graduation Sunday because many of you are going to fly the coop, and your mom or your dad or whoever is going to give you some money, and you could go be really dumb with that money, or you could make wise choices. So if nothing else, grads, this one's right at you. Make wise choices with your money. But for context, we're going to be in 1 Timothy this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. 1 Timothy chapter 6, as we begin to unpack what it looks like to, follow, to trust in God and follow Him with our finances. 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, we have one in the back. You are welcome to grab one. So as you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of setup of what's happening. Paul is writing a letter to this guy, Timothy. Timothy is in Ephesus. He's helping lead several churches, actually, in Ephesus. And one of the reasons that he's writing this letter is to give them, him advice on how to worship, like congregationally, how should you function as a church? Congregationally, how should you kind of operate? We call that church governance. Uh, but he's also kind of writing to them to say, like, as Christ followers, how should you hold yourself? Like, How should you walk through life? And that's one of the areas that we're going to focus in on this morning, starting in verse 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. It says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For who brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world? What if, but what if, oh, excuse me, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So, the, the, the big picture here, I want, I want to give you a quick definition of contentment because I found this, uh, that, that first sentence of, but godliness with contentment is great gain. That's one of those sentences in Paul's text that should really just slow you down. You should really go, okay, what does that mean? So contentment, here's a good definition. A, a perfect condition of life in which no aid or support is needed. So to be content is a kind of, place in life in which no aid or support is needed. 
Now, the issue of contentment is one that most people will struggle with. Many of us in this room will struggle with contentment, but the way in which we express that struggle will vary from person to person. Let me give you some examples. Some will struggle with being content in their finances, and so they will work very hard to try to give themselves some security in their finances. Matter of fact, I read a blog recently, uh, and this is a sad story, but uh, a pastor goes into the doctor's office. He sits down and the doctor says, you have cancer. And the pastor's first thought was good. And here's why. He said, because now I can finally give my family something to, that will help them move on after I'm gone. Like It will be there to provide for them. Some of us feel that. Some of us look at our financial situation and we're like ducks on a pond where everything above the water looks cool, but below it, we are just moving 100 miles an hour. We cannot be content with how much money we make. Now, we don't necessarily look at the way that we spend or the things that we do. We go, we just need more. Other of us, other, other, others of us, I should say, struggle with pride or the need to build something. Now, I'm not going to lie to you all. My, my personality type would kind of lean into this one and the idea of contentment to go, I want to build great things. I want to be a part of championship winning teams. I want to be a part of organizations that are flourishing, that are thriving. And that in and of itself is not a bad thing. However, when I cannot be content with the things that God has given me, I am no longer being content with God himself. And so as a leader, I've got to remember, and as a pastor, I've got to remember that God has blessed even when I'm not recognizing those blessings. Like as the pastor of this church, I could find myself going, ooh, we need to grow, we need to do this, all these things need to happen. But what I need to remember is that it is not just about numbers on a page or numbers in seats, but it is about the individual and it is about the blessing that God has given us. I'm thankful for friends like Flynn and Gina Partain who several weeks ago looked me in the face and said, Chris, growth is great, but growth for grace, growth's sake is not what we want. We want growth for the gospel's sake. And so if you find yourself in a place where you're going, ah, oh, man, I need to build, I need to grow. If we're not growing, we're dying. Maybe I would say, hey, pump the brakes and recognize the blessings of God. Recognize what He has done and what He will do as we sang this morning about His faithfulness. Some of us struggle with contentment and, and it comes out in the wandering eye. So what I mean by that is you continually look and lust after someone else. If you're a single person in the room, maybe you're, you're saying when you do that, that the season that God has you in, God isn't enough. That your fleshly desires are more important than the desires that God gives you and His will for your life. If you have that wandering eye and you're single, maybe this is where you are. Or maybe if you're married, you're saying a similar thing to God by having the wandering eye, but what you're also saying to your spouse is that they aren't enough. And so our idea of contentment expresses itself in various ways, and what we need to remember is that God has told us to be content in Him. There are many ways that discontentment is flushed out, 
But the reality is, Paul is showing us that our holiness, meaning our right living, and our contentment in that right living, he says, produces great gain. So this is how we lean into the things of God, is we go, I'm going to be content with who God is. I'm going to be pleased with who He is and where He has me. But what happens when we're not content? What happens when we become discontent? Let's continue on. That next verse, it says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now there's something important to notice here. Paul does not say that being rich is a bad thing. You don't see that in this text. And I think too often in church history, people have tried to shame the rich person. The reality is, the rich person's wealth could be a great tool for the kingdom of God. And so it's not whether or not you have wealth or don't have wealth. The reality is that God is calling us to look at this picture of what do we do with our wealth. He says when you begin to love this thing, when you lift this thing up over God, when you are discontent with what God has given you and you find yourself in the rat race of always trying to get more, great deal of pangs, meaning sorrow, will come your way. So we have to be content because when we're not content, sorrow is on the horizon for us. So then what are we to do, Christians? How are we to live? How are we to seek after God in the midst of a society that in so many ways kind of pushes the envelope on get more money? Like I know we have funny songs that talk about the issues of money, but the reality is all of us find something deep inside of us and we hear it on a regular basis like get more money. That's what we want. We all want more money. So what does Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tell us to do? He says this, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, meaning flee these temptations. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. By the way, that's a really good example of why we in the church do baptism in front of everyone. That's why we put people up in front of the church and say, hey, this person's given their life to Christ because we're making a confession, a good confession, Scripture would say, in front of the presence of many witnesses. He goes on to say, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, 
whom no one has ever seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I think the key point in that part of the text, Paul says a statement. He says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Do you do that? Do you take hold of the eternal life into which you were called? I find this to be one of the more challenging statements from Paul throughout all of his writings. Because we don't think about that. We don't think about living for eternity today. We think about today. We, we think about what trips we have coming up. We think about what payments we have to make for our children's school. We think about what food we have to put on the table. We think about what all the things, the bills that have to be paid and the, the future investments that need to be made. But very rarely do we slow down in the midst of all of those thoughts and say, am I taking hold of eternity in the way I spend my money? See, God will call some people to sell all of their belongings and live as nomads, preaching here and there the gospel. But in this text, Paul isn't saying, hey, everyone, this is what you need to do. If you're going to be a good Christian, you need to sell all your stuff. You need to drive a car that you own. You need to live in a house that you own. You need to make sure you shop at the Goodwill or at the rescue mission for your clothing. And if you have nice things... You're a bad Christian. That's not what he's saying. In no way, shape, or form is, what, is that what Paul is saying. Is that what God is insinuating? So let's, let's look a little deeper into what, what he is saying. Let's look at Jesus' words. Let's go to a couple of different places. So Jesus says it a little differently in his Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at two different places in the sermon. The first one is Luke chapter 6, verse 43. He says, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasures, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Our children at times will misbehave. And when, when they get caught doing something, I don't know if your kids or if you were like this, as soon as I catch my kids, specifically my six-year-old doing something, he will say to me, I didn't mean to. Right? I didn't mean to. And of course, in my Enneagram 8, rational brain, I'm going, yes, you did. But okay, let's slow down and let's talk about this. So generally speaking, I do believe that when our children say, I didn't mean to, they at least believe part of that statement. It's at least partially true. What is more likely when they say that is that they didn't mean for it to go the way that it went. Right? Micah did not intentionally mean to hurt his sister and make her cry. He just wanted to slap her. Right? That's, that's how it works. Or, or Maggie didn't intend to make Micah super jealous by getting up in his, in, in his mama's lap and then looking at him with those eyes like, that's where I'm seated. I'm seated right in mama's lap. What you going to do about it? Right? 
They didn't necessarily intend for the emotions or whatever to happen, but they certainly did intend for the action to work that way. Or better yet, they didn't intend to get caught. Right? I didn't mean to means I really meant to slap them, but I didn't really want to get caught doing it. I didn't really want the punishment. And I think our children reveal their true nature a little better than we do. I think you and I have become uh, a little wiser than them, but the reality is our intentions say the same thing. And this is what Jesus is pointing at. He's saying the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So your actions 100% align with your heart. So you can't do something and then look at me and go, well, I really didn't mean to. Now, we make mistakes. I'm not talking about the, the outlier. But in general, the way we spend our money, the way we talk, the, t- the things that we spend our time on will 100% show you what you believe in, show you what you value. He says it in a different way in the same sermon, and, and Matthew records it like this in chapter 6. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where their thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where the thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, what we've got to begin to see is that God is calling us to invest in His kingdom. Not in the kingdom of this world or our castle, so to speak. He is calling us with our finances, with our actions, with with our work product to pour in to the kingdom of God. So how do we do that? How, How do we begin to see money as a tool to be leveraged for God and His kingdom and use it in the way that he has intended while also receiving joy. While not allowing the tool to take place of God in our heart. So we've been doing these fighting tactics and we're going to continue. So fighting tactic number one. Here's how you do this. Here's how you put money in its correct place in your relationships and in your personal life. Here's how you do it. Fighting tactic number one. Don't ignore the strength of sin. Do not ignore the strength of sin. Francis Chan says this. He says, We can't cure our narcissism by trying to ignore ourselves. The solution is to stare at God. And when we actually stare at Him, everything else fades to its proper places. So the solution in handling our money with wisdom and using it as a tool that God gave us is to not ignore it completely and just go through life. It is to look towards the Lord and ask for wisdom from Him. We have to be content in and with Christ. Because remember, discontentment breeds pride, greed, and lust. Where contentment grows righteousness, godliness, faith, and love. And Paul calls this out in that text to Timothy. He says, look, Your actions need to come from a place of purity in your heart, and that place of purity only comes when you look at God. 
you will not get there by ignoring the issue. You will not take great strides of faith by being discontent and by ignoring the issue at hand. You need to recognize that your flesh is looking to pull you down at every moment and what you need is the grace and the goodness and the mercy of God. That is fighting tactic number one. Don't ignore the strength of sin. Number two, we need to make a plan. Paul goes on. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, there's that eyesight thing again, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So, Paul is presenting to us in this text the argument of making a plan. And every good plan begins with, number one, prayer. All things need to be bathed in prayer. Just as these fighting tactics are methods to wage spiritual war, prayer is our first step in the battle. The second thing that you need to do is the B word, the one we love. B-b-b-b-budget. Right? And some of us go, can I get up and leave right now? Dave Ramsey says this, a budget is telling your money where to go instead of where it went. Oh, Father Dave. Listen, if you're single, this is a good habit to get into for a number of reasons. The first one is that, number one, some of you might want to hear this, some of you might not want to hear this, but you could be single for a while. And that could be a good thing. But what it does mean is you need to plan for your future. If you are single, you are the breadwinner, right? It ain't coming from anywhere else. So you need to plan for your future. Number two, you need to do a budget and prayer because if you get married, when you add a second mortgage or a second house or a second whatever, things get more difficult. What did Biggie say? Mo money, mo problems. So, single people, know that you need to know where your money is spent today so that if some point down the road you join up with someone else, it makes it a little easier because you already know how to manage your money. Trust me, I found this from personal experience. It's very difficult when you add two salaries, incomes, whatever you want to call it, together, and you hadn't even been managing one well. Now all of a sudden you got two and you're going, hold on, did you go to this place and did I go to that place? And oh wow, we just overdrafted our bank account. I mean, unless you're just rich, it's going to happen. Like it's going to happen when you're young and or, I guess even when you're old and you make bad decisions and you don't talk about money, you're going to bounce a check. And all the Gen Z's are like, checks? What's that? So... If you're married, let me, let me say this. I know that in our day and time, there are several married couples who feel as if they have circumvent, circumvented this step in some ways. I even talked to a, a, a guy leading a fairly large organization and said, yeah, we've never had a budget. And I hung up the phone going, man, that guy's crazy. Like, it, you don't have to be 
uh, hardcore about it, but I, I think there, there's, a, there's some wisdom in budgets and there's some things that you need to talk about. And so as married couples, uh, one, one of those ways that I think sometimes we think we have circumvented the, the budget thing is to keep our money separate. And what, what I mean by that is that, and I'm not going to get legalistic to tell you that you're in sin if you know, the, the husband has his money and the wife has their money and, and they don't bring it together, but I, I would ask you this one question. When God brought you and your spouse together in covenant, the covenant of two becoming one, do you really believe that it was God's design for you to keep your money and for your spouse to keep their money and you just kind of live under one roof and you know, fiscally act like roommates but sexually act like married people? Do you really believe that that was God's plan for your marriage? Uh, another pastor puts it like this. He says, consider a few practical ramifications. When couples decide to maintain or create separate accounts, especially accounts the other spouse is unable to access, the complexity and challenge of managing their finances well is increased. There are more accounts and the expenses that take place within those accounts to track. Giving generously, saving wisely, and living appropriately are more difficult to accomplish. Communication between the couple must increase because the likelihood of making a financial mistake increases, i.e. bouncing checks. Of course, a desire for increased communication is not what typically drives couples to maintain separate accounts. Now let's go a little deeper, he says. Joints, joint accounts, meaning those that are able to be accessed by both spouses, communicate something different to your spouse. To start, they communicate our money and our expenses. It doesn't matter who makes less or more. It is our money. Joint accounts communicate transparency and trust. They also communicate commitment. Contrastingly, separate accounts can communicate a desire to remain free of accountability and responsible to one another. Now, if you're in the room and you're going, well, we've kept ours separate for years and it's worked for us, I'm not, again, I'm not telling you it's sin. I am asking you, though, to look at the text and look at kind of what God has set up in marriage. And in so many places in our life in marriage, we're going, yes, two become one. We are one in Christ but not with my money. And I go, is that really the picture that God has called you to? I mean, is that really the future? Is that really where you say, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this person, but they ain't touching my money? I would just push back on you. And I would ask you to dig deep. As that pastor mentioned, there's certainly some functional sides of having two accounts or having one account uh, and a budget looks a whole different kind of way, so I'm not sitting here telling you you need to do it a specific way, but I do think what old Father Dave said, a budget is telling your money where to go instead of where it went, is a wise statement. We need to kind of know what's going on with our money. Remember, a budget is not an action, but a plan of action. So the third point of, of making a plan, so the first one was prayer, the second one was make a budget, the third one and everyone's going to get squirmy here, is your budget needs to consist of having a tithe and a gift. Yep, I said it. I went there. Noticed, I separated the two. I think sometimes in church, we talk about tithing and giving as the same thing. But scripturally, they're a little different. 
So let's, let's unpack this really quickly. God calls us to tithe, and this is kind of an Old Testament word with a New Testament heart. See, tithing is simply giving to the storehouse. It's, it's giving to the Lord through His local church. And it could literally be translated in the Hebrew to kind of be like one-tenth or ten percent. Now sometimes in, in Scripture in the Old Testament, it, it has a, a, a meaning of a little bit more, and there's some debate over that in the theological world, but there's no debate whether it's less. I will tell you that. So, 10%, kind of that word tithe in the Old Testament is what we see. Now, when we arrive in the New Testament, what we're no longer, what we're seeing is that we're no longer under the law, right? Christ died and set us free from sin and the law, but we have been freed from sin and freed to the Lord's work. So, what we see is a much grander picture of giving in the New Testament. What we ultimately see is that Everything you have is His. That's right. All of it. Our tithe in the New Testament is kind of our first fruits. And I'm not going to go through all the texts because there's a bunch of them, but it's the money that we give to the Lord through His church. That is kind of tithing. When when we talk about giving up here, 99.9% of the time we should be using the word tithing. This is where your tithe is because you're giving your first fruits to the church. Giving, on the other hand, is kind of this general calling to be generous. It goes into supporting ministry causes. That K-Love radio station you love. That child through compassion. All of those things, great causes out there, those are giving. Hence, the New Testament calling where God doesn't just say, hey, make sure your tin goes to the storehouse and the rest of it, the, the church will work out. It's not what He says. Multiple times you'll see in Scripture, people give a lot more than that. People give most of their income at times. You'll see throughout the New Testament. So I drew this point because I think there's a time when we'll start asking questions about giving. Like, so hold on, can I split my tithe and my gift to this other ministry and kind of call it under one thing? Like, I'm trying to hit my percent. So some of us are like Excel spreadsheet people, right? And so you got your budget out, and it's all fancy, and you're going, 8% is going to this place, 1.2% is going to this place, and 008 is, and, and pastor, that's a good thing, right? And I would look back at you and say, you've missed the point. Like, it, it's not, I'm not going to sit here and go, oh, okay, all right, you gave 7% this year. Failed, right? Not my job. God's not necessarily going to be doing that either. But what God is looking at, he's looking at your heart, and he's saying, okay, What are you giving to the church? How are you generously living with your finances? Let me say this. Every single person in this room, from the 13-year-old to the older person, (laughs) is financially able to tithe. You are. 100%. Now, I'm not telling you that at this day, this moment right now, you're financially able to give 10% of your income. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that if you were to make plans with your money, you could tithe. And there's no gift too small. Because God is not measuring your gift by how much it fills up that bucket. When, when, when the lady walks up to Jesus and pours the, the, the year's salary of perfume on his feet, do you think Jesus said, hmm, 
you know, you could have given a little less and been fine. You could have given a little more. He just recognized the faith. He just recognized the gift. And as a matter of fact, he used that then to hopefully spur on, but certainly in that moment kind of backhand some rich folks to go, look what she's got and look what she gave and what you got and what you're doing. He didn't use those Ebonics. But what we need to remember is that making a plan as a Christ follower means putting his church in that plan. And what he would say is to put it first. So, number one, we need to, uh, finding tactic number one, don't ignore the strength of sin. Number two, make a plan. That's prayer, that's budgeting, that's putting Christ's church up there. Number three, fighting tactic. Function from and in joy. An article recently said this, research has shown that arguments about money early in a marriage are the leading predictor of future divorce. In a 2015 study performed by SunTrust Bank, 35% of married couples that were experiencing marital, marital stress attributed money as the reason for their stress. Your security is not found in the size of your savings account. I know it can feel that way to open up that web page and see that number and go, we're good. There's not security there. There's security in Jesus. I'll ask the question again that I asked earlier. Do you take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, or are you still too busy trying to hold on to security in this life with what you can do? If you're a Christ follower, you're called to rest in His ways, not on your own, and not in the ways of this world. We need to remember that money is a tool that can be used to propel the gospel or prop our comforts. There was a time in my life, as the band comes up, I'm going to close... There was a time in my life when I looked at giving and money to the church in a really functional way, in a way that was like, you know, when we give, it, it turns the lights on, it pays the bills, it supports our ministerial staff, it supports ministries all around the place. And, and as a result of only looking at tithing and giving as a way of function, my giving was subpar, to say the least. But through... The testimony of others. Many in this room who would say, you know, throughout the years, when, even when we hit financial strain, Chris, you can come up. I see you wiggling. Come on. Hey, you're welcome. Even in the midst of financial strain, these people would say, I continued to tithe. Now, it might not have been the same dollar amount, but I continued to give. And through that, God saw us through. Through testimony after testimony after testimony of married couples and singles telling me, that they gave, even when at the beginning of the month when they set their budget, they're looking at the end going, I don't know how this is going to work. They said at the end of the month, every single month, I got numerous people who said this, every single month we were fine. Did we have to adjust some of the ways we lived? Absolutely. And then I saw it firsthand in my own life. Amy and I, several years ago, now we were poor for most of our marriage. We just, we just made little money. Not that we make an extravagant amount now. But at, at a point in our marriage, we said, you know what? We, we've got enough people saying these things to us. And the kicker was, each of us in our quiet time had God saying the same thing. You need to be giving. You're not giving. Yes, you're giving money. But you're not giving. You're just putting money in a plate. You're not worshiping me, and you are not resting in me. You're resting in your works 
and in your efforts. And since that moment, God has freed me up to see that our giving and our tithing is not just a thing that turns lights on. Yes, it does that. It is how we rest in God. Because see, when Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, he knows, and when Jesus is preaching that sermon to the thousands at that moment, he knows that each and every one of us struggle with money. We struggle with contentment, and we struggle to put God where he belongs and money where it belongs. To use it as a tool to better his kingdom as opposed to letting it use us as a tool. So my encouragement to you this morning, in your singleness, in your married relationships, in your co-worker relationships, is to let money speak from your heart. Put that thing where it belongs. In your pocket or in a bucket. It doesn't matter. It doesn't need to lead you in life. You lead it. It ain't nothing more than a hammer hitting a nail. That's all it is. And so church, it really comes down to this. Are you going to trust in God or are you going to trust in the things of this world? That's what money comes down to. It's not difficult. It's nothing we should get squirmy about or nervous about. Will you trust and rest in Christ? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this morning as we discuss relationships and money, that we will recognize that you have called us to rest in you in all things. That you haven't just called us to work really hard and then when things don't work out, to come to the Father, you have told us to come to the Father first. And with that great commissioning that you have then given us after we meet with you, we then go out and live a life pleasing and honorable to you and be content in who you are. Give those of us who are doubting and struggling with the faith to tithe the courage. Show us that it can be done. Speak into our hearts. Give us a, a sense of generosity, not just for the church, but outside the church as well, for those that are hurting, for ministries that need supporting. Help us to use our resources to invest into your kingdom. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.